Listener Production. Welcome to Crime Insiders Forensics. For those joining us for the first time, my name's Catherine Fox. I'm a former GP, crime author and screenwriter. I'm enthralled by forensics and have spent thousands of hours researching for books and screenplays. So, I thought, why not turn my research into a podcast? Every week, you'll be joining me in discovering how forensic science is helping solve high-profile crimes in Australia and around the world. This week, the technology which is helping track down Australia's missing people and kick-starting criminal investigations. We're now looking at about 10,000 DNA markers when traditionally we look at between about 20 and 30 DNA markers. Associate Professor Jody Ward is an internationally recognised forensic human identification expert and is leading the AFP's efforts in identifying unknown human remains. You can't investigate whether a crime has taken place or not until we actually figure out who the victim is and then work backwards as to the circumstances of their death. We'll start the conversation with one of those cases. A set of unknown remains have been found in a northern suburb of Brisbane and the circumstances around the deceased are confusing and police are unsure of where to start their investigation. A set of unidentified human remains were located in a storage space underneath an apartment block in Orderly, Queensland in December 2022. This individual was wrapped up in a number of wrappings and had likely been in that location for a number of years. So her body was recovered and taken back to the mortuary to undergo a forensic examination to try and establish the identity of that individual and try to obviously understand the circumstances and cause of her death if they could. So the police then find this body, it's hidden, Um, it was deliberately hidden, clearly it wasn't meant to be found immediately. So we're looking at a crime. Given that you don't know cause of death yet, the anthropologists then examine the scene. They can only get so far with crime scene people there, obviously, and a lot of evidence will have been eroded or decayed or disappeared over that period. So what happens now? So the body would be taken back to the mortuary to undergo the examination by the forensic pathologist and the forensic anthropologist. Obviously, from the criminal investigation point of view, they're also looking at any important evidence on the wrappings of the body or the clothing of the body, any other artefacts and things with the body as they're unwrapping it. And then the examination then commences of the remains themselves. And that's conducted by the forensic pathologist and the anthropologist in the first instance. So at the moment, the police have got a criminal investigation, a probable homicide, but they don't know who the victim is. So how on earth do they begin their investigation? By identifying the victim. And here is where we came in, because for many of our cases, you're right, you can't investigate whether a crime has taken place or not until we actually figure out who the victim is and then work backwards as to the circumstances of their death. So for many months after that body was recovered, there was work being conducted to try and identify that victim. So there's a lot of pressure on you then to identify 
remains. Yeah, and and on the detectives, of course. But so this is where the forensic scientists are trying to examine the remains, looking for any evidence which may give us an indication of who this individual is. So the first thing that we can do is undergo the dental examination and then then search those dental charts on a national database which contains the dental records of missing people and there was no match in that instance. So then the next port of call is the DNA testing and we do a similar process. We obviously want to try and recover a DNA profile and search it on our national DNA database to see if we get any matches in the first instance. Apart from missing persons, who else's um, DNA is in that database? So on our national DNA database, that's the National Criminal Investigation DNA database, that houses DNA profiles from crime scenes, convicted offenders, suspects. It contains DNA profiles from items of missing persons, so things like DNA profiles recovered from blood samples or toothbrushes. Um, And it contains the DNA profiles from all unknown deceased persons in Australia. How long is DNA kept on that database for? Yeah, that that there's a number of legislations which govern that, and that differs between state and territories. Although it's a national program, you're actually um, dictated to by the state's individual laws. So that's a national database. Our national program is separate to that. Our, one of our goals was to try and input as much data from the unknown deceased persons and the relatives of missing persons onto our national DNA database. So, you know, a database is only as good as the data that's on there. So we wanted to populate it as much as possible. But that national database is designed to share and compare DNA data across state borders. That's what it was, you know, it was originally designed to link crime scenes at a national level. But some new functionality a few years ago now enables us to upload DNA from relatives of missing persons and they get segregated off to the side and their DNA is only being searched against the unknown deceased persons as that DNA is uploaded. So privacy is protected as much as possible? Well, it's all consent-based. So when someone provides a DNA reference sample to the police, they're signing a consent form which explicitly outlines how their DNA will be used and what it will be searched against. So with this lady who was found in the basement of the building, if you didn't find her DNA in the missing persons um, folder, for example, where do you go next? So it was searched against all the missing persons items on the database, unsuccessful. It was searched against all relatives of missing persons that are currently sitting on the national database and there was no matches. So that's when we met with the detectives and talked about what other forensic techniques our program has that might help. So we were considering things like maybe a cranial facial reconstruction. So we could try and depict the facial image of this individual in life and then push that out to the public in the hope that someone would recognise her. And the other thing we were doing was a technique called radiocarbon dating. We obviously found the body in December 2020, but we still didn't have a clear indication of when she might have died. 
So we can use radiocarbon dating to try and estimate the year of death of that individual by looking at the chemical signature of the bones. Plus, we can also use that technique to estimate the year of birth. The anthropologist had provided a rough indication of how old they thought this individual was, but we thought we could maybe use the radiocarbon dating to narrow that in a bit more. How big a window does the anthropologist give you? So the anthropologist gave us a window of about 30 to 55 years of age. So we knew it was an adult female, younger to middle-aged. We then did the radiocarbon dating and the year of birth estimate was 1969 to 1970. So that was quite a narrow window of when we thought this woman was born. And the death year range was between 2009 and 2015. So we had, you know, a six-year window provided now from the radiocarbon dating as well. So what's the next step? So then I think at this point we discussed the use of forensic investigative genetic genealogy with the detectives and this is something we thought we could do simultaneously while we begin to do the cranial facial reconstruction. They gave us permission and sought the state coroner's permission for us to proceed using that technique. So that involves us conducting a specialised form of DNA testing where we're now looking at about 10,000 DNA markers when traditionally we look at between about 20 and 30 DNA markers when we generate a typical STR profile for, for our national DNA database. And we can then upload that DNA profile to public DNA databases to search for those more distant relatives, given we had no luck on our national DNA database. Things like Ancestry.com. So there's only two specific databases that we can search as law enforcement. The first one is GEDmatch, that's G-E-D match, and the other one is Family Tree DNA. So we cannot access Ancestry.com, 23andMe, MyHeritage, those other genealogy databases. However, someone can take one of their DNA profiles that they generated using those companies, download the data file and upload it to either GEDmatch or Family Tree DNA and consent to law enforcement searching to help us identify these human remains. And in this particular case, what happened when we uploaded the DNA from the remains, we uploaded it firstly to GEDmatch and we obtained a genetic link to a second cousin of this individual and a double third cousin of this individual. And if you and I think about our second and third cousins, I don't know about you, but I don't even know who they are. I'd be are. thinking, who? Do they That's exist? That's right. We potentially have hundreds or thousands of these very distant cousins. Um, and so these individuals wouldn't even know that they had a missing person in their family. So once we see that we have these links, we have an amazing genetic genealogist that works with us on the program. And then she gets to work trying to understand how these genetic matches are linked. So that's when she has to build back the family tree, in some cases many generations, to find that common ancestor who shares DNA with our unidentified human remains. 
So you, the facial reconstruction, did you do the facial reconstruction? No, we never finished the facial reconstruction because we were able to resolve this case using forensic investigative genetic genealogy. And so our genealogist got to work with her um, distant cousin matches and we were able to identify uh, one of those close relatives actually lived in another country. So our genealogist identified that one of their grandparents' siblings immigrated to Australia at some point. And so she hypothesised that the unidentified human remains was a granddaughter of their immigrant great-aunt or uncle that came to Australia. And this is what we're finding with many of our cases. Some of our matches are actually people living in Australia today and some of our matches are people living in other parts of the world. Um, that then adds another layer of complexity in terms of contacting those people, finding records, now looking at immigration records and things. Language. Yeah. So, um, and it, it does make it hard for the police to contact these individuals to talk about the case, to also understand if there's any other genetic relatives in their family that could potentially upload to GEDmatch or Family Tree DNA. Um, because often we find that many of these people have actually tested. So once we find a genetic match, their extended family has also tested because, you know, they're all interested in their family history, but they might all be sitting on Ancestry.com, for example. And so it's whether someone would then consider migrating their DNA across to a database so we can see where it fits in our family tree with our unknown deceased person. And that's no cost to them to do that. That's right. And in this particular case, the genealogy identified a family that the detective should concentrate on. And so then they take over at that point to conduct their own investigation into the genetic leads that we provide them. And they were able to locate the mother of our unknown deceased person. Still alive. Still alive. And also her father. So what we then found was that her father had actually also taken one of these direct-to-consumer DNA tests previously to research his family history. And so he was willing to move his DNA across to GEDmatch for us to see if it was related to our unknown deceased DNA. And at that point, we were able to see that there was a genetic match and the most logical explanation for sharing that amount of DNA was a parent-child relationship. So then at that point, the forensic investigative genetic genealogy process stops and then we have to actually go back to our standard DNA testing to confirm the identification. And so we had to then actually perform an STR test on who we thought was the putative father of this individual. We'd already generated the STR profile from the set of remains because that's what we used to upload to the National DNA Database. And the mother also provided a DNA reference sample. So we're able to produce a family trio of mother, father and daughter to confirm that our unknown individual was a biological offspring of these two individuals 
and they only had one child together. Did they have any idea that their daughter had been missing? The mother had confirmed that she hadn't seen her daughter for a number of years. And no contact? That and, and, no, and no contact. So um, neither the mother or the father had reported her missing, nor had anyone else. So she wasn't actually registered as a missing person in any state or territory in Australia, nor were any close genetic relatives sitting on a national DNA database, which is why we didn't match at that point. And, you know, you can kind of see the potential of this technology when we knew after the fact that her father had actually taken one of these consumer DNA tests, but it was just sitting in a place that we wouldn't able to access. To, to access. But if we had processed her DNA and uploaded it to GEDmatch, we would have immediately hit against her biological father, which we wouldn't have believed at the time. <laughs> but Because you would have thought it was too lucky. Yeah, right, yeah, right. So, you know, I guess as part of our messaging is that in this particular instance, you know, this individual was related to a missing person that they didn't know was missing at the time, but many Australians could be distantly related to one of our 750 unknown deceased persons in Australia and, and not even know it. So by them considering uploading their DNA to GEDmatch or Family Tree DNA and allowing us access to it for our human remains identification purposes, I have no doubt that we would have more success identifying these unknown Australians. Is there a way that people could circumvent necessarily the genealogy sites and donate to the database directly for criminal or for unidentified people? So at this point in time, there is no Australian-based DNA database that is based on this type of specialised DNA profiles simply for the purposes of human remains identification. So if someone knows of a missing loved one in their family, we're encouraging them to provide their DNA directly to the state and territory police. So that way their DNA will go automatically to our national DNA database. And that's where we want all relatives to be sitting. And then we don't have to consider anything like forensic investigative genetic genealogy in the future. However, for those public DNA databases, we're encouraging Australians to think about whether they would like to assist by them voluntarily copying their DNA across to GEDmatch, for example. So they don't have to provide their DNA to the AFP, to our program, to facilitate. That's something they make the choice to do and take active steps to do. But it does require them to upload their DNA to a public DNA database. In the US... A lot of the people donating their DNA is because of true crime podcasts and the like. There's so many of these cases now being solved with forensic investigative genetic genealogy. The general public is actually seeing the power of this technology. And, you know, this is citizen forensic science at its best. So it's a, it's a positive, proactive stance that someone in the public can make. That's exactly right. It's an informed choice, but... 
it could have a very wide-reaching impact if we're able to resolve a case because they were a distant relative of one of our unidentified human remains. You mentioned craniofacial reconstruction with this lady, whose name, by the way, is Tanya Glover, once you determined her identity. You didn't finish that facial reconstruction. There is another case in the Northern Territory that did involve craniofacial reconstruction, Lee Anya. Yeah, that's right. So this case involved some partial human remains being found in May in 1987 near the sewage ponds in Lianya in Darwin. And we went up a couple of years ago to examine these remains with a forensic anthropologist. And our forensic anthropologist determined that these remains were likely those of an Aboriginal female older than 18 years, but likely younger than about 30. So we knew we're dealing with a young adult here. And she was estimated to be about 155 to 169 centimetres tall. Now, the only other thing that was found with the remains was a small piece of yellow fabric. They thought it might have been a yellow dress but it was only a small piece of fabric and that's the only kind of other artefact that they've been able to hold on to in terms of the investigation. We had generated a DNA profile from these set of remains, but unfortunately there were no DNA matches on the National DNA Database. So we then discussed employing cranial facial reconstruction for this particular individual in the hope that someone might recognise her. So for National Missing Persons Week, our forensic artist generated a cranial facial reconstructed image of her that was promoted during that week. Unfortunately, to date, it hasn't led to any new leads for this particular case. But what is involved is us taking a fragmented skull and our forensic artist was able to reconstruct that back to its three-dimensional form. She takes a non-destructive 3D scan of the skull and then she uses her anatomical knowledge of the face, so understanding both the hard and the soft tissues of the face, to firstly attach muscles to the skull structure and then to input a nose, eyes and mouth for that individual. And then she'll overlay the skin and also can use DNA information we generate through a process known as forensic DNA phenotyping, where we estimate someone's hair colour and eye colour and their genetic ancestry from their DNA to help essentially add colour to that facial depiction. You might recall in previous reconstructions that they've typically been made out of plasticine or clay, or if they are a digital image, they're often left quite white. There isn't a hair colour or an eye colour normally attached because we don't want to um, misconstrue someone's ability to be able to identify that person based on incorrect pigmentation. So we're now, I guess, combining this new DNA technology with this new cranial facial reconstruction to create the most realistic depiction of that person in life that we can. And so we've been able to do this for our second time with our Lianya case. 
Again, how do you know how accurate it is? <laughs> like noses, for example, when people were reconstructing like sculptors, noses, you don't have that bony prominence to actually have any idea how large or how wide the nose is. And that can make a massive difference to a person's face. Yeah, and so a forensic artist who obviously has studied a lot of anatomy and physiology, um, you know, she's looking at certain structures on that face in terms of the placement of the ears, in terms of whether the nose is crooked or not, in terms of how protruding the chin is, you know, how, how thick the eyebrow region is. She's looking at all of those anatomical features on the skull to make inferences about what the soft tissue should look like. And what we actually did was to validate this procedure. So in my other day job, I'm the director of the Australian Facility for Taphonomic Experimental Research in Australia, which is colloquially known as our body farm. After. After. So we were able to use six human donors and our forensic artists scanned their skulls once they were skeletonized, and she actually recreated a cranial facial reconstruction for these six individuals. Because you have the photos originally. Well, we then actually reached out to our families and asked them if they would be willing to share a photo of their loved one from close to their date of death. And then she was able to then objectively assess how accurate her recreated image was. They were also able to enter those two images into facial recognition software to see if they hit against each other. Other facial experts actually compared them to determine how many matching features were between both of the faces. So that process for us was invaluable to be able to optimise the technique that we had created. So, you know, as part of this research, we were able to now create a more optimised cranial facial reconstruction method. She also learnt what areas, you know, should remain more blurred, for example. You know, things like hairstyle, how, how boarding someone is, how much the stature of someone, so whether someone is overweight or underweight, which is going to have a, an effect on a facial face appearance. A more gaunt face. Yeah, that's right. So we kind of learnt what things she could kind of narrow in on and provide a lot of detail around and what things she should pull back on. So that was a, a very invaluable learning exercise for us and we're indebted to our donors at our facility for, you know, affording us these opportunities to improve the forensic techniques we're actually using to identify unknown individuals when we don't have ground truth data like we do it after. Well, we've spoken to people at um, the Victorian Institute of Forensic Medicine about their massive database now of um, CTs and now yeah. they'll be MRIing anyone who's deceased. So they will have an enormous database of what these people looked like, the depth of their tissue, the depth of their muscle, the laxity of the muscle, all of those things. So presumably this is an area that can really take off and be far more accurate than it was in the past when we look at you know, past newspapers of have you recognised this person? Yeah. It's who knows, um, could have been anybody. But with all that new technology data, 
Is that going to be a godsend for you? Yeah, and I think things like AI and stuff as well, you know, the facial recognition software is rapidly improving as well. And a lot of research at After is also around how long does facial recognition software work as someone's body decomposes? How much structures of the face do we actually need? Because, you know, things then like... um, Government databases of facial images now potentially become an avenue to identify unknown deceased persons if those types of facial recognition algorithms get better at better at matching living faces with skeletonized remains. To the driver's licenses around Australia, there must be a massive data bank of facial photos. That's not, right, licenses, passports. Not flattering. But, um, <laughs> That's right. And definitely not smiling. <laughs> you're unlikely to <laughs> smile in death as well. That's right. So I just, I just think it's a really exciting time for forensic human identification. There's so many new applications evolving that will help us with our job of trying to identify these hundreds of unknown Australians that we have. If there is one thing you could say to all the true crime obsessed aficionados, people who um, obsessively listen and want to help and want to contribute, what would you say? I think there's three things that that can happen to help us with our mission of identifying unidentified human remains. If you're aware of a missing loved one in your family, please report it to the police. If you're a close biological relative of that individual, please consider providing a DNA reference sample to police that we can upload to our national DNA database. And for every other true crime buff that isn't aware of a missing person in their family, they can still help us locate and identify missing people. And they can do that by downloading their DNA data from their direct-to-consumer company of choice, uploading their DNA data to GEDmatch, and ensuring they have opted in for law enforcement matching. Because I have no doubt that as the number of Australians and the diversity of Australians that do that, we will have more success being able to identify our unknown Australians. That's actually been incredibly informative and hopeful as well, I think. And despite all the discussions about DNA databases and things, there's actually a really positive outcome. And then the investigation of these crimes can begin. That's exactly right. I think, you know, now we've now used this new technology to identify three of our unidentified human remains. Our program has successfully identified 15 long-term missing persons in total, but three of them have resulted from forensic investigative genetic genealogy investigations. So I think the public can now see a tangible outcome. They can see that these these random strangers have been able to assist us identify these individuals, some in Australia, some in other parts of the world. But it now gives, it definitely gives families of long-term missing persons renewed hope. But, you know, as we said before, this is citizen forensic science. The general public can help us with our mission. And, you know, everyone wants to see these unknown remains get their name, their faces restored and be reunited with their families that have missed them for years. And actually receive proper burials. That's right. And in some cases, we're identifying victims so justice can be served as well.
Associate Professor Jodie Ward, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, Catherine. Crime Insiders Forensics is a listener original production. It's hosted by me, Catherine Fox, and is produced by Ed Gooden. Sound design and imaging is by Link Kelly. 